What's going on, everybody? Welcome in to another episode of the Lakers Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Kester, here with you as always. I'm joined by my usual co-host, Hani Amadi, and we have kind of a special podcast for you guys today. We are joined by Mike Sielski, who just authored a, a brand new book that is just fantastic, and we're going to talk about that today. Um, it is called The Rise, Kobe Bryant and the Pursuit of Immortality. Mike, I want to thank you so much just for taking uh, the time to to not only uh, talk about the book, but also write the book and um, excited to talk about this uh, with you today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Gary. Thank you so much for, for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this. I want to thank you again for um, allowing us to, to read the book. Um, growing up, Connie and I both, you know, diehard Laker fans, uh, Kobe fans. Growing up, Kobe was my idol. So it was great to to get some, some insight into the young Kobe and kind of um, see where um, kind of the legend of Kobe started and all this stuff. So um, it was really great. But um, first off, I just wanted to ask you kind of what inspired you to write the book and find out more about Kobe's um, origin story and, and what was it like uh, to learn about Kobe before he became the legend that we, we all, we all uh, came, to knew, uh, came to know? So after he died in January of 2020, um, I ended up writing about him a fair amount. Uh, in my role as the sports columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, you know, obviously everybody's familiar with Kobe's ties to the Philly area. Um, and it was a big story, you know, in our area as much as it was in LA or anywhere else. Um, so about a month or two after that, uh, I kind of got to thinking and I knew that, um, you know, I had, I knew a couple people who had known Kobe well when Kobe was young, uh, among them, Jeremy Treatman, who was kind of, this confidant slash media relations rep kind of to Kobe uh, back when Kobe was at Lower Marion High School. And I knew Greg Downer, who was Kobe's head coach at Lower Marion. So um, I kind of got the idea, I, I got to thinking about how in the Philly area, we all know, if you follow Philadelphia basketball in our area, you know the story of Kobe at Lower Marion pretty well. Um, but Philadelphia is very parochial. It's kind of got this under the dome kind of quality to it. And what um, is kind of taken for granted as knowledge around here isn't necessarily taken for granted as knowledge in the, in the larger world. Um, so I kind of got the idea like, you know, there's a really cool story about the Kobe that nobody knew until he got to L.A. And the fact that he was only 17 when he entered the NBA made it feel like he had kind of grown up before everybody's eyes, you know, because you, you, you kind of met him publicly when he was 17 and then he has the 20 years with the Lakers and all that stuff. But I knew that those first 17 years that didn't have anything to do with the Lakers were really interesting and had a lot of drama to them and that there were these other narratives and anecdotes and stories that I could, I could mine and dig up because I had grown up and worked in the Philadelphia area for so long. Um, and then I was, I was kind of thinking this out, the, the elevator pitch I came up with was that I wanted to do Batman Begins for the Black Mamba. I wanted to, you know, if you know that movie, it's one of my favorite movies. It is how and why Bruce Wayne became a superhero. Um, and so I thought, why don't I frame this as an origin story instead of trying to do a whole biography about Kobe, I'll just home in on, you know, the first 17 years of his life. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think that's a great analogy and being a big Batman fan uh, myself, I kind of had similar thoughts uh, when reading the book that and, and kind of diving into Kobe's origin story, um, thinking about that. Um, I'm curious as well, kind of what the process of writing this book was like for you. Obviously, there was a ton of research that, that went into it and you came across some um, audio tapes um, that involved a young Kobe and and um, I'm just curious kind of what this whole process was like for you to, to learn about this and, and put uh, pen to paper about it. So the audio tapes you're talking about, Gary, um, are and were owned by Jeremy Treatman, who, as I said, was kind of an assistant coach, kind of like handled all of Kobe's interviews during Kobe's senior year of high school. When the hype was getting really big, Jeremy was the guy everybody had to kind of go through to get to Kobe. So at that time, he got the idea for trying to co-author Kobe's memoir. And it would be all about Kobe jumping from high school to the NBA. So the two of them sat down for interviews in 1996 and 1997 towards this book project that they were going to do. As it turned out, the, the book never got written. It just bad timing and some circumstances. So Jeremy had all these micro cassettes and he kind of threw them in a bag and threw them in a box and put them away and never thought about them again. But he had taken the time to transcribe some of the interviews, not all of them. So when I reached out to him about the, with the idea about doing the book, he gave me the transcripts and told me, hey, I can't find the tapes. So I went along with the research, you know, to your question about, you know, talking to everybody I could track down from those, from Kobe's high school years, talking to everybody I could track down who knew his parents before Kobe was born. You know, the book gets into Joe Bryant's NBA career and, and Pam Bryant and what the family was like in Italy and all those sorts of things. So I'm trucking along with all that research, um, digging up old newspaper articles, going to the Lower Marion Historical Society, all that stuff. And then on December 22nd, 2020, three days before Christmas, I'm in my home, 8.30 at night, my phone rings, and it's Jeremy. He had been cleaning out his garage in his townhouse in Philly because he was moving to Boca Raton, and he found the tapes. And I almost dropped the phone. I was like, I can't believe this. So the next morning... Again, two days before Christmas, I drive over to his townhouse. He hands me this giant Ziploc bag with 20 micro cassettes in them and the recorder that he used to record them. The recorder didn't even have like the, the panel to the battery part was gone. Like it was so, it was like being in like a technology museum seeing this thing. So he handed it all over to me and I spent the next month listening to these tapes and hearing what a 17, 18 year old, even 19 year old Kobe thought about his relationship with his parents, what it was like to meet Michael Jordan or Shaquille O'Neal the first time, um, what it was like to take Brandy to the senior prom, what he thought of Del Harris, his first coach with the Lakers. Spoiler alert, not much. Did not like him. Um, so I, I, I mean, it, it, it gave me chills listening to this. Um, and it's a clunky phrase, and I'm not sure it's even appropriate, but it was almost like listening to Kobe from beyond the grave. Um, here he was again, but he wasn't 39, 40, 41-year-old Kobe. He was 17-year-old Kobe um, living it at the time and talking to Jeremy about it. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because um, you know, we obviously all, all knew Kobe, the the Laker, right? The the legend that became the the, the adult that um, you know just had this unbelievable 20-year career with the Lakers. But um, learning so much about kind of the the kid that became that legend um, was just really eye-opening. Um, and I do want to talk about uh, the Del Harris point a little bit later on um, because I'm really fascinated to hear more about it. But um, 
I guess my last follow-up to kind of the start here is what were uh, kind of some of the takeaways or things that maybe you learned um, during this process that you didn't really expect to when you began uh, the process of writing this book? I would say the big one, Gary, was um, I was really fascinated by Kobe's search for his identity away from basketball, right? Like we all knew Kobe from his career in the NBA as the hardest working guy, totally devoted to, you know, wringing every drop of basketball ability he could at, out of himself, right? Like he's going to work harder than everybody else. He's going to stay at the gym longer, all of those things. He had that as a young kid too. And some of the more revealing anecdotes in the book and what I learned is, is how committed he was at such a young age to being that great and the lengths that he was willing to go to, to be that great. Um, sacrificing time with a social life, um, the kind of drills he would put himself through, you know, driving around to playgrounds in Philly and, and having a friend scream at him while they're playing basketball. Like, you, you know, you're not black enough. You go to a, you're soft. You go to a white school because he was, you know, Kobe was already hearing those things and he knew he was going to continue to hear those things. And he wanted to kind of emotionally um, protect himself, right? Learn how to deal with it. But his search for his identity as a kid in the environment of Lower Marion High School and Lower Marion Township in the early 1990s really interested me. So for instance, I had not known this until I started researching the book. Kobe joined the um, student voice at Lower Marion, which was their high school's chapter, basically their black student union. Um, nobody ever talked about this. I had never heard anything about this. Um, but in talking to friends that Kobe had who were in high school with him who did not play basketball, they spoke to this aspect of his personality, the idea that, you know, he and his sisters and his mom and dad had lived in Italy on and off for eight years. So when they come back to the Philadelphia area permanently, when he's 13 years old, he hasn't grown up in the way that all the black kids in his neighborhood have. He hasn't grown up in the way that all the white kids have. He's kind of unique in, in what he's bringing to the table. And he's kind of a fish out of water. Like he doesn't know what music's cool. He doesn't know what clothes are cool. You know, none of that stuff. Um, he and his sisters walk the hallways of high school and speak to each other in Italian because that's what they're used to and because nobody else will understand them. So it's like their own language. Um, and so that fascinated me, like how he figured out who he was apart from basketball was really interesting. You know, he could hang out with the kids who played, who, he could hang out with the jocks. He could hang out with the honor students in 10th grade English. He could hang out with the kids who like rap music he kind of cut across all the sections of the school all the while trying to figure out who am I really? Yeah. And I think that's what I was part of what was so fascinating to me was you got to learn kind of a, for me personally, like a, a whole new side of Kobe that we didn't know. And me personally, just being such a diehard Kobe fan, like I grew up playing basketball in, you know, the Boise, Idaho area. And I always wanted to be just like Kobe, like Kobe was my idol and everything I did basketball wise, I tried to work as hard as him, have the same kind of mannerisms, that sort of thing. So it's like, it felt like I knew Kobe so much, but then reading this, learning just a whole new side of him. While also there were, you kind of mentioned, there were certain things about him, even as, as a young, as a young man that we saw the, the, you know, as the black Mamba. And one, one line that always, that made me just smile and laugh was um, that he was picking up a friend and it was, it said it was about 90 degrees outside and he had the heater going in his car. 
and it was driving the friend crazy. And, and Kobe said something along the lines of, I'm, I'm going up against Jerry Stackhouse. I got to be warm. I got to be ready. And I was like, that is just, that was classic Kobe, even at a, at a young age. It's just, um, that's, that's just a quintessential Kobe. Yeah, that was the summer of 1995. Like that, in some ways, that was the turning point of his career in life, right? Because that's the summer where he's scrimmaging and playing pickup against all these NBA players in the Philadelphia area who happened to be there. A lot of Sixers players at the time. Jerry Stackhouse obviously was one of them. There were others, guys like Rick Mahorn and Sean Bradley and Sharon Wright and a bunch of D1 college guys there too. And because he holds his own and then some against those guys, he knows I can make the jump. I don't have to go to college. I can go straight to the NBA from high school. But what's funny about that anecdote, Gary, that I didn't realize until the book was already finished, was that anecdote involves Kobe and a friend and teammate of his named Emery Dabney, who was a couple years behind him at Lower Marion. And they're both going to these workouts, and it happens exactly as you describe it, which is Kobe's got the heat going on a 90-degree day because he needs to stay warm to play against Jerry Stackhouse. And, and so Emery told me that story. I finished the book, and I ended up talking to Emery again months after the book was done. And we were talking about that anecdote and Emery adds, and yeah, um, I left out the one part where I said to Kobe, Kobe, it's, it's, it's 90 degrees outside and we've got the heat on the car. What are we doing? And Kobe says, well, I got to stay warm for Stackhouse. And if you don't like it, you can get out. Like, and they're at a traffic light, like on the way to the gym. And it's like, oh my God, like, you know, but again, to your point, that's who he was when it came to basketball. It was, I'm willing to do anything I have to do to be great. And if you're not along for the ride, if you don't see it the way I do, you can get out. Uh, Mike, moving on to some of the details in the actual book. One thing I really appreciated about how you started it was focusing a lot on Kobe's family. First couple chapters are about his mom and dad. You talk about his sisters. And a lot of that, at least for me, was information that, you know, other than knowing Joe Bryant played for the Sixers and, and played in the NBA and played in Italy, there was not a whole lot of information that I knew. Um, and his relationship with Kobe, Joe's relationship with Kobe, I thought was a theme throughout the book. And found it really interesting that it seemed like Kobe really emulated him and looked up to him on the court, but from a young age was a lot more serious and was making sure that he wasn't making the same off-court mistakes that Joe did in his career that led to him not being in the NBA. Um, how much of that did you learn was maybe a conscious decision by a really young Kobe or was something that Joe himself instilled in him? I think it's probably a little bit of both, Honey. Um, you know, I do think Kobe looked at Joe as kind of a cautionary tale in some ways when it came to the NBA because Joe was incredibly talented and in some ways was kind of ahead of his time. He was six foot nine. He had been this incredible high school and college player in Philly. If he had stayed in college, went to college in Philly at LaSalle, which is my alma mater. And if he had stayed an extra year, he probably would have been the first overall pick in the, the subsequent draft. But he came out early and coaches didn't know what to do with him because he was six foot nine at a time before Magic Johnson. So if a guy's that big, a coach only knows, like, we'll put him under the basket in the post. And Joe could go behind his back. He could run. He could shoot. He could do all, handle the ball, do all this stuff. So his eight years in the NBA aren't what he hoped they'd be. He has to go to Europe to kind of find his calling, so to speak, as a basketball player. And he's kind of bitter about it. Like, he, he Kobe grows up hearing that Joe didn't get a fair shake. And, you know, I had to go to Europe, and I didn't want to go to Europe. And, you know, all this kind of stuff. So Kobe's got that aspect of Joe, and he wants to—he clearly wants to redeem Joe 
and the Bryant good name in basketball. Like that's, that's one of his driving motivations as a kid is like, I'm going to, when, when people think of the Bryant name, they're going to think of Kobe and Joe Bryant. And Joe had all this experience, of course, having played in the league, he could play one-on-one with Kobe, give him tips, all that stuff. The flip side of that though, is that Joe did not have the Mamba mentality. Like there's no doubt about that. Like he was the kind of guy who would miss the bus to practice and he didn't really like playing defense and he kind of was flash over substance and all this stuff. Pam Bryant is where Kobe gets the Mamba mentality from. She was the matriarch. She was a strong black woman, raised Catholic, took care of her family, protected her, her family, particularly her youngest child, who was Kobe, her baby, and was a disciplinarian away from basketball. He was going to get good grades. He was going to you know, eat his dinner every night and do his homework and all those things. So in some ways, Kobe had the best of both worlds. He had all this talent and this wealth of knowledge from Joe, and he had the mental and emotional approach, the steeliness from his mom. Yeah, I definitely, I, I think that's something that really comes across at various points in the book of, of having those two different viewpoints um, and, and sources for, for how his career really developed. Yeah, and it, to me, it was a fun part of doing the book, right? Because it, it allowed me to get into a little bit of the history of Philadelphia basketball. Um, it let me, you know, I felt like every anecdote from that time, whether it was Philly or Italy, really lent a kind of insight into how Kobe uh, developed and into the man he became. For instance, there's an anecdote in the book about uh, Kobe watching practice uh, when Joe was playing in Italy. He's there with Joe and all his Italian teammates and Kobe shooting at one basket, dribbling the ball. And the coach asks Kobe to stop, to quiet down. And Kobe tells him, F you. Kobe's like eight or nine years old at the time. <laughs> but you can see, like, you can see the adult Kobe doing exactly the same thing. And if you read the book, you'll see the connections between Kobe saying that and his mother saying that in certain situations. Right. Um, and, and you, and you notice that, you know, Kobe gets indulged when it comes to basketball, he's kind of allowed to do what he wants to do and the way he wants to do it by Joe and Pam. They're disciplinarians in certain respects, but not when it comes to him and his basketball career. And, you know, there it is when he's eight or nine years old, you can see the Mamba he's going to become. Yeah, Kobe was uh, definitely not afraid to pull punches uh, when it came to basketball. And and one thing um, that he, he was very critical of was um, when he got older, especially, was the AAU system. Um, and I'm curious kind of what you learned about his thoughts, um, maybe as a kid playing in the circuit that led to him having um, a critical attitude, because he was very, very outspoken uh, as he got older about the AAU system and the AAU circuit. It's an interesting kind of breakdown, right? So he plays a lot of summer league ball and he's on the AAU circuit in and around Philly when he's young. And there's the, the story that's been told a number of times about how he had the one summer in the Sunny Hill League, which is the prestigious, was the prestigious summer league in the Philly area. And he didn't score a single point the entire summer. He just got, he didn't hit a foul shot, didn't get like a, you know, a layup in a blowout game, nothing. And that served as motivation for him. And then he also played on this AAU team that I spend a lot of time with, the Sam Rines All-Stars, who were, again, locally based, not among the big New York-based AAU teams at the time. And initially, Kobe is looking at this like it's his own private laboratory. Like, I'm there to work on my game at the expense of everybody else if I have to. And 
kids come to resent him for that. And, and the coach, Sam Rines, is like, Kobe, dude, like there are other kids here who want to get college scholarships too, you know? And then you have the other side of Kobe, which is Lower Marion, you know, playing for his local high school. Now, if Kobe Bryant came along today, he'd probably be at Monverde Academy or IMG Academy or something like that. But he, at the time, he played for his local high school. And so I always kind of, to, to your question, Gary, I think the, the high school aspect of his career is what's informing what he said about AAU ball later on. He had to play AAU ball to get seen by, you know, the basketball coaches and Cognizenti and to get his profile raised and to test himself against Tim Thomas and all the other great high school players at that time. But I think he derived more satisfaction in some ways from the Lower Merion experience and winning the, the district championship and the state championship. And so maybe looking back on it, he's saying, you know what, the AU experience, you know, it's necessary, but it's not nearly as valuable as playing for your local high school was and, you know, experiencing success as a team. Um, sort of going off of those challenges that he had playing basketball at, on the AAU circuit, uh, one of my favorite stories in the book is uh, young Kobe talking to his one of his friends at Lower Marion, who uh, I believe was a JV point guard uh, on the girls team, mm -hmm. who uh, was considering quitting the team just because every time she played, she was struggling and getting benched. And Kobe is the one to tell her not to quit because she can still learn about basketball on the bench. Um, but also there are plenty of stories of, of Kobe kind of being a ball hog on his own team and his teammates maybe not appreciating him as much. Uh, what did you learn kind of going through all these stories about Kobe's reputation and evolution as a teammate? Because that's obviously been a big part of how he's discussed throughout his NBA career as well. It was a continuing evolution, Hody, with fits and starts, right? His AAU coach, Sam Rines, you know, comes down on him for not passing the ball enough. Um, his freshman year, Lower Marion goes four and 20, which ought to be freaking impossible. You have Kobe Bryant on your team. How do you go four and 20? But part of the reason they go four and 20 is because all the other guys on the team resent him because the new freshman star, quote unquote, is taking too many shots. So it's not really until as, as you know, and Lower Marion gets better over time because Kobe is so good. But then early in his senior year, there's the big, the big kind of turning point of their season they lose a game at the Beach Ball Classic in Myrtle Beach. And it's a game they should have won. Kobe fouls out late. He's having a great game, but he fouls out, and the team just nosedives after he's out of the game. And Greg Downer, the coach, calls this meeting afterwards. And he goes, he's going around the room, and he's pointing at all the guys like, you're playing soft. You're goofing off too much. And the whole time, Kobe's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then finally, Downer turns it on to Kobe and says, you got to trust these guys more. You can't, you know, it's basically, it's not enough for you to score 31 points and have us lose and have you think, well, you did your part. And it's really one of the first times in a team setting that he gets called out, that he, it's like, okay, you can score 35 and that's all great. But if we lose, it doesn't make a lick of difference. And you've got to get these other guys who aren't nearly in your stratosphere as players to buy in and be confident playing with you. You can't intimidate them to the point that they are afraid of making a mistake for disappointing you or having you come down on them. And after that point, Laura Marion doesn't lose another game. Um, so I think 
that's indicative of what you're saying about what he went through with the Lakers, right? There were there were times where he was a really good teammate, and there were times where he was not a good teammate at all. And you know, I would recommend reading Jeff Perlman's book, Three Ring Circus, for a better sense of that, because um, mm. I don't really deal with it very much in this book, but it's there, you know. And that gets to what I wanted the book to be was if you know this stuff about Kobe when he's a Laker, well, he it was you should know it about when he was at Lower Marion too, because it probably you know, prefaced what was going to come later in his career. Speaking of later in his in his career, I guess just from a young uh, player's standpoint, I we, we had talked a little bit about Del Harris and, and Kobe's rookie year, um, and I wanted to circle back on that. Um, and I, I just I'm curious to to know kind of what you learned about um, doing all this research about Kobe's rookie year and his relationship with Del Harris and just uh, kind of the insight that you got from a young Kobe in his first year with the Lakers and first year in the NBA and just everything that you kind of learned. So if you could just talk more about um, a rookie, the rookie Kobe um, that goes beyond what we just saw on the TV screen. So he entered that season. I mean, it's really, it's crazy when you think about it. Like he ends up a Laker. He's 17. He's 17 years old. And he's talking to Jeremy Treatman on these tapes, you know, about me and Shaq, we're going to win three, not three championships, four championships, five and he does not enter his first season with the Lakers like, okay, I get this great opportunity to learn from guys like Shaq and Eddie Jones and Nick Van Exel and all these guys who are on the team. It's like, no, like we're going to win the championship and I'm going to be the star. And that's, and, and the only thing that's going to stop me is if Del Harris gets in my way. And lo and behold, Del Harris gets in his way because he's 17 and Del Harris is not going to just turn his team over to a 17-year-old kid who wants to shoot the ball all the time. So there's, you know, and I've had this verified by people who covered the team back then. You know, Kobe would be dribbling too much and Harris would be yelling at him from the sideline, stop dribbling, this isn't high school, you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Kobe would come back to the bench furious and he's telling Jeremy Treatman, Del Harris is trying to hold me down. He's trying to keep me down. And this, this effing guy, blah, 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 blah. And he just doesn't want me to do well. And it's like, on the one hand, you're thinking like, okay, maybe there's something to the idea that Del Harris doesn't see how great Kobe is and can be. But on the other hand, it's like, dude, you're 17, 18 years old. Like, what do you think he's going to do? He's got Shaq and Eddie Jones and, and Nick Van Exel and all these other guys on the team. Do you really think he's going to let you just do whatever you want on the court? But he really did. And, and again, you contrast that mentality, that thinking at that time, with what he's doing away from the court. Like, he's coming, he's playing a game on a Thursday night or a Friday night, and he's calling up his agent's assistant, asking if he can come over so they can watch HBO together, to watch Mr. Bean together. Because he doesn't have any peers on the team. There's nobody he can spend any time with. Um, he would, he would go to his, this woman's house, Alyssa Grabow, who was kind of Kobe's caretaker his first year with the Lakers, and she would be having a dinner party. She, would be, she was in her late 20s, and she's got her friends over to hang out, and they're sitting around having glasses of wine, and Kobe's sitting in the, in the living room just watching TV, not talking to any of them. And it's like, what is this kid doing here? And she was kind of his babysitter in some ways because – He's starting to feel his oats, right? He's, he's living with his mom and dad in, in Pacific Palisades. They have this incredible house. She's cooking dinner for him as if he were still in high school. But he's like, you know, I'm an NBA player now. I kind of want to do my own thing. And 
you know, I can't do it on the court and I can't really do it away from the court. So where does that leave him? Yeah, that's really interesting because I remember watching his Showtime documentary and he briefly kind of talks about going through that that stage of um, driving around UCLA's campus and, and seeing these these people his age, you know, socializing and enjoying college and being around their friends. And then, you know, here's Kobe who is, you know, playing in a league with grown men who doesn't have that, that those same type of relationships and stuff like that. So it's it's interesting to get more insight on kind of what was going uh, through his mind during that stage of his life. Yeah, it's it's such a it's such an almost clean dichotomy, right? A break between who he was as a player and who he was away from basketball, right? Like there's this one anecdote that I ju- I just love. This might be my favorite anecdote in the whole book, where after he ends up with the Lakers after the '96 draft, he's talking to Arn Tellum, his agent, and Tellum's kind of mentioning different NBA players that Kobe's going to have to go up against, right? And you know, Kobe's coming off of four years at Lower Marion High School and of summer league ball in the Philly area where he's playing against, you know, guys in the Philadelphia Public League and guys in the Philadelphia Catholic League. So Tellum says at one point to him, well, what about John Stockton? Now, this is 1996. John Stockton has been the point guard of the dream team. He's about to leave the Utah Jazz with Mike, with Carl Malone to back-to-back NBA Finals where they lose to Michael Jordan and the Bulls, right? Like those two Jazz teams are two of the best teams ever to not win a championship. John Stockton's one of the three best point guards ever. His views on vaccination notwithstanding, which came out today. I don't know if you heard that. Yeah. Kobe says to, so tell him, says to him, what do you think of Stockton? And Kobe's like, yeah, I played against a lot of guys like that from the Philadelphia Catholic League. So what he's saying is like, he's taking John Stockton and reducing him to all like the short, white, Irish point guards that he would go against in the in these summer leagues around Philly. Who, you know, oh, the, the the best point guard in the NBA is just like that kid from Monsignor Bonner High School who I played against two years ago. And he like he like reduces Stockton to this cultural stereotype like that. And yet he's 17 years old. Like, who thinks that way? But he did. And you know, the rest is history. He basically looked at John Stockton and thought, "That's it's the same thing as playing against Gary Kester in high school." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Like I played like against guys like that my whole life. Oh, okay, all right. You played against the guy who's a ten-time All-Star, nine-time assist leader, all-time leader in steals or whatever. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you've you've gone against guys like that, kid. Okay. <laughs> I, I've seen Gary's tape. I think that's a fair comparison. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Uh, I think another interesting part of this book is that even though you mostly talk about high school Kobe, there's a lot of insight into both his NBA career, like we've already talked about, but also his post-NBA career. And one of my favorite chapters was uh, mainly about Kobe at school and, and his education at Lower Marion, um, and specifically in his English class. Uh, I think you even start the the chapter with a quote uh, about him saying he takes school very seriously and he likes writing, especially poetry, which is obviously a a good foreshadowing of how he Mm -hmm. announced his retirement from the NBA and then his further career. Um, And there's an anecdote about his teacher being frustrated that everything that he wrote kind of came back to basketball, Yeah. uh, which again is similar to like all of his, uh, the book series that he wrote and everything like that. Um, Did you learn about any other passions that he might've had uh, in that time as a kid, as a teenager that either did manifest in his uh, post-playing career or that maybe he didn't get a chance to get to 
Uh, I know rap was obviously a passion of his, and he did kind of get into that uh, early yeah. on in his NBA career. But uh, anything else? Well, he was more of like a searcher almost. Like, you know, he comes back. The family comes back in December of 91. Kobe's 13. He's in eighth grade. And he plays baseball, right? Like, all, there's all these similarities between him and Michael Jordan and all these comparisons over the years. And here's another one that I discovered in the, in the reporting of this book. They both play baseball. And what's funny about it is I dug up his eighth grade yearbook. I found it. And there's a photograph of the Ballakinwood Middle School baseball team. And there's 18 or 19 kids in the photo. And every single one of them is wearing a baseball cap and has a glove on his hand, except Kobe. Kobe's wearing this sweater that looks like he looks like he's a character on the Cosby show. It's one of those like big, like striped puffy sweaters. And he just looks like a kid. And he, but he's, he really stands out in that photo as the one kid who maybe doesn't belong there. Um, but that's it. Like he's intellectually searching. He loves his English classes with his teacher and mentor, uh, Gene Mastriano. Um, he loves rap music. He's able to connect with kids on different levels and in different areas of interest. Uh, you know, he's, he um, presses, he has a friend, Corella Berry, who has a beautiful singing voice. And so he asks her, what do you like about music? You know, would you be willing, um, I, I think it's Corella talking about, you know, he wants one of his classmates to sing the national anthem before every game at Lower Marion because he loves the sound of her voice so much. And, that was it. Like, bas it was almost like basketball was the separate entity in his life. I know I'm going to be a great basketball player, and I will pour myself into that. But in those moments where I'm not, let me see what else is out there, whether it's storytelling or rap music or, you know, experiencing Italy and being able to take in a different culture and, you know, being open to people of all kinds of backgrounds and races and all that side of stuff. He, was, he did not have a homogenous upbringing, and I think he embraced that to a great degree. Yeah, it was it was always amazing to, especially just as Kobe got older, to kind of learn about what what things piqued his interest and 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 really drove him um, outside of basketball and things that he was so passionate about. So um, it was really it was really fascinating to be able to learn um, that aspect of of that side of Kobe and that aspect of his life. Um, I do want to. <clears throat> I don't know, end this uh, pod, I guess, on kind of a more sad note, but um, I couldn't help but think we're, we're recording this on a Sunday morning, um, at least we're, we're, we are early Sunday, and we're about three days from the anniversary of, of Kobe's death. Um, and the book starts with talk, looking at those people that are close to him, Greg Down or Jeremy Treatman, um, reacting to the news of, of Kobe's death. So I'm curious, because a lot of people obviously link Kobe to Los Angeles, right? He was arguably the greatest Laker ever, 20 years with the same team, five championships, all the accolades, all that stuff. I'm curious to know what impact his death had in the Philadelphia area, be, being that he, you know, has his, his roots are there, right? Like everybody knows that young Kobe was there, um, became this basketball phenom at Lower Marion High School. So I'm curious to know kind of um, what impact his death had in, in the Philly area. So there's two distinct answers to that question, Gary. Let's take the Philadelphia area as a whole first, the, the macro. Kobe always had a really fraught relationship with the city of Philadelphia in particular and its surrounding communities, um, in part because there was always this debate about, is he really from Philly? You know, he was born outside the city and, you know, Lower Marion is, it, the stereotype of it is this 
very rich, posh suburb just outside the city, a lot of old money, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, when the Lakers played the Sixers in the 2001 finals, he said he was going to rip the hearts out of the Sixers and their fans. And a lot of that angst over Kobe in the Philadelphia area, I always thought, came down to the fact that he was exactly the kind of player who, if he had ended up with the Sixers and played here 20 years, would have been a god. They would have loved him unconditionally and more than any other athlete in the city's history because of how he approached, generally speaking, how he approached winning, his commitment to preparation, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so, so there's that. And so, you know, Kobe had softened in his latter years in the league and his last game in Philly, he was, you know, there was this warm embrace of him because it was over and, and his career was ending. And there was a lot of sadness when he died in and around Philadelphia. For the people who knew him at Lower Marion, it, everything was a little bit different, in large part because the people he knew at Lower Marion or who knew him from Lower Marion first and foremost really looked at him as a point of pride for that community. And so that his death hit them that much harder. And more than that, the people who knew him when he was in high school, to a great degree, continued to see him as the kid they saw in the hallways or in class, or playing Ridley High School on a Friday night. You know, it's like you guys or me would be with the people we went to high school with. In some ways, I have very close friends from high school, and in some ways, I still see them as the 18-year-old the, the young men and women who they were back then. And Kobe was still that, for all his stardom and all his achievements, so many of his friends from back then still looked at him as, hey, he's just Kobe. Like I was, I remember, you know, I, meaning one of his teammates would sit next to him on the team bus and we'd go over a bridge over a river and Kobe would get nervous and he'd kind of white knuckle the seat because he'd, you know, he was nervous about heights. That's who they remember. That's the guy they remember. And so their sadness over losing him was in some ways deeper and more acute even than anybody in Los Angeles. And I don't mean to suggest that it was worse for people in Lower Marion. I just mean it was different. And I think their roots with him made it different yeah absolutely i think that's a great point on kind of how we look back on just certain people that we know that maybe we grew up with that you know i've got lifelong friends that i i still see kind of like the the sixth or seventh grade version of them and a lot of times in my eyes even though they're you know grown up and, and married and have kids now or all this this sort of thing so it's it's a really interesting dynamic for those that knew kobe before he became the kobe that people like me knew um, so it's, it's really interesting to kind of hear that, that aspect of it, because obviously, um, his, his death and his legacy just, I mean, it, it's, it's a global thing, it, you know, spans the entire globe. And, um, it's, I want to thank you for sharing uh, kind of what, uh, what it meant really where, uh, you know, he was really in those formative, um, early years. No, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I enjoyed writing the book. It was, it was really a cool exploration, exploration. Um, and I have to admit, like it was, it was Chilling's the wrong word, but I did get a sensation of, oh, I don't know what the quite the right word is. It was just really fulfilling to be able, for instance, to go back and talk to some of the people who knew him back then, to go to the Lower Marion Historical Society and thumb through like the, the high school student newspaper with stories about him or about what was big news at Lower Marion High School while he was there, or to go back through newspaper archives and read about Joe Bryan and his dad. Like, in a lot of ways, it was a trip back in time, um, but it always had that fresh connection to the present and to somebody who was so familiar to everybody for so long. 
um, it, it really, I really enjoyed the project and I really enjoyed talking about it with you guys. I really appreciate you having me on. Of course, uh, one last question for you, sure. and a very vague and broad one. Were there any stories or anecdotes that you ended up leaving off of the book that you think would be fun to share? Um, gosh, uh, nothing really off the top of my head. I, I tried to get everything I could in there. Um, I'm sure there's there's anecdotes that I missed. Um, yeah. You know, there was some stuff about games here and there, but I didn't want to get I didn't want the book to get bogged down too much in play-by-play of Kobe's high school games. So, right. you know, there's there's plenty of tape that Jeremy Treatman has where, where Kobe's talking about, like, his mentality about, um, like, there's a game, a playoff game his senior year where the other team was talking trash to him, and he says something like, yeah, well, my three-pointer was feeling good that night, so I decided to lean on that. And he ended up hitting seven or eight threes and scoring 50 points against that team and kind of <laughs> shutting them all up. Like, the, the game wasn't that important, so I didn't include it in the book. But again, that's kind of like a consummate Kobe sort of anecdote. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's it brings a smile to my face, like seeing the Kobe that that like we grew to know and love, um, still being there with you know high school Kobe and, and early years Kobe because uh, he truly was one of a kind, one of a kind, and you know still somebody I think about very often. And it's just incredible what his 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 legacy has has been beyond the game of basketball and beyond his life. Um, you know, just a ran like for me personally, just a, a random kid in Boise, Idaho, that you know grew up here, and somebody I never met. You know, I, I got to see him walk by close close by one time, but somebody I never met that had such an impact on my on my life, and I know so many people can can speak to that. So. Um, so yeah, um, for those of you listening, this, this book, uh, this book, the rise Kobe Bryant and the pursuit of immortality by Mike Zielski, uh, you can find it on the rise of That'll kind of take you to any of those, those outlets that you can get the book. Um, highly, highly recommend it was such a, a fascinating read and, and it kind of took me on a little bit, a little roller coaster of emotions, uh, especially kind of the way it starts and, uh, made me think back to that day, uh, that day, um, you know, January 26th. And, um, just, it, it was just a fascinating read. And Mike, I just want to thank you one for taking the time to talk about it with us. And, and two, uh, just for writing this book, because I know so many people are going to, to love and appreciate it. Guys, I really appreciate it very much. I enjoyed this and, uh, thank you so much for the kind words about the book. And, um, yeah, I hope Lakers fans everywhere really enjoy it. Um, I wanted it to be an honest, um, rendering of who Kobe was. Um, and I think I, I hope I did that and I hope everybody enjoys it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this will be, this pod will be up on all the podcast platforms and we'll put it up on basically all of our socials, um, YouTube, Facebook, all that sort of thing. So, um, if you listen to this pod and you haven't bought the book, go buy the book. It's, it's a great read and you will not be disappointed. So, um, Hani, Mike, thank you guys so much for taking time out of your day to talk about this. And, uh, For those of you listening, thanks for listening, and we will catch you guys next time.